This is Haunted America Radio. With your host, Al Shepard. And now, Haunted America Radio. Before we get to this episode's interview, here's another short story from Michael Gore. Here's part one of Likes. Seventeen? Seventeen? Candace dropped the phone on the bed, tears filling her eyes like a flash flood. Lying on her back, the tears pulled before spilling down her cheek and running into her ears. For a brief moment, there was a thought of how gross and uncomfortable it was. But then again, the thought of that god-awful number, 17. Reaching over, she grabbed a tissue off the nightstand, blotting both eyes and wiped each cheek. With a deep belly breath, Candace looked over to see if Sam was sleeping. Sure enough, he was still out, just like every night. It was three in the morning after all. Two more breaths and she vowed not to check her phone again. It could wait until morning. She checked it again at 4.13. Then at 5.26, still that nasty number, 17. Candace's first words that morning was, Get it yourself. You're ten years old, Gunner. Christ! She was screaming so loud on a dry morning throat that she instantly felt the damage. Her voice would be hoarse all day long. The two more hours of sleep she wanted, more so needed, were not enough to stop the need to pick her phone up. Her stomach twitched. Candace tried to tell herself that it was just hunger, but deep down, she knew it was nerves, belly breaths, picking up the phone, thumb on autopilot. She hit the little blue square with its lowercase f. The little tiny bell in the bottom corner of the screen was moving back and forth silently to announce that there were notifications. That was always a good sign. But the little red number above showed a pathetic number three. Candace's perfectly manicured, peach-colored thumbnail hovered over the button. The tiny tap would determine the mood for the day. Whether she'd admit it or not, tap. The screen changed and her eyes scanned the notices. Jim posted a new picture. Tammy was live. Four new likes. The total now was 21. The phone flew with ease out of her hand, the rounded quarter of its glitter case breaking through the mauve wall paint and the half-inch-thick sheetrock before falling to the floor with a loud smack. Candace shot up with shock. It wasn't the first time she'd thrown the phone, but it was the first time it had broken the wall. Panicking, she turned to see if Sam had seen what happened. She hadn't realized that he wasn't in bed and the shower was running. What the hell is going on with me? Jumping out of bed, she raced to her phone. The wall hadn't heard it but the Malibu blue Italian tile floor that cost more than the home she'd grown up in had shattered the screen. More tears. Panic fell on her like a wet blanket, not because of a dent in the wall or their obnoxiously expensive bedroom, nor was it the fear of Sam. 
It was because she would not have her phone for, oh God, how long? The cover story was easy. Spider on the wall. But getting a new phone? Well, that certainly was not. The day was filled with stupid child-centered activities she had to attend. If she skipped them to get the phone, she couldn't take pictures of Gunner at gymnastics, pottery class, or the rec center's newest attempt at the riding the pop wave of mindfulness, contemplation time. If she missed any of those, the girls would text her and ask where she was. But even worse, they would post their own pics and she wouldn't have any. Candace wouldn't be tagged in anything. Everyone talked about the day, but not about her. Worst of all, there would be no likes. The thoughts ravaged her brain. It was worse than Sophie's choice. Miss all of the classes to get a new phone? Or be embarrassed by taking her iPad to take pictures with? Either way, it was a lose-lose. Not for a split second did any guilt or self-blame seep into her thoughts. After all, it was not her fault she threw the phone. It was the likes. If she had more of them than Tina's, Kelly's, or Brittany's posts... She wouldn't have thrown the phone, but they all had over 40 each. What the hell was she doing wrong? It had to be Gunner. He just wasn't cute enough anymore. Why did he have to become a preteen? Maybe she needed to have another kid. Babies get a ton of likes no matter what the picture. The day was turning out to be the worst in history. Her iPad was dead. Not only did it need a charge, it was screaming at her to do an update. She was going to have to wait to check if the likes increased later. Breakfast was a nightmare. Had Gunner always eaten that way? His mouth hung open, milk drying on both sides of his lips, rainbow flecks of cereal crammed in his teeth and covering his tongue like a confetti bomb had exploded. His hand held a full spoon dripping milk, frozen in time on his face as he stared at the tablet to watch whatever terrible YouTube video was on. The spoon only entered his mouth once every other minute. In between spoonfuls, his tongue rolled back and forth around his lips like it had its own brain and was begging for the food to keep coming. He was a zombie. Sam had his phone out as well but he ate a bit quicker and with more elegance, as if the years of eating before watching devices at the same time had trained him. As she watched the two of them disappearing into their own worlds, she never felt envy so strongly. It was infuriating. She was missing so many posts, she couldn't make any comments. Everyone was going to wonder where she was. The anxiety this caused was crushing. Candace couldn't imagine wishing this suffering on her worst enemy. No one should suffer this much. As she cleaned up breakfast, still not sure why she couldn't have a housekeeper like Kelly did, a decision was made. Skip the classes to get the phone. It would be a blow and she was not sure how to overcome it. But getting a phone back couldn't be more paramount. After seeing Sam off to work and Picking out Gunner's outfit, annoyed, he didn't look good in anything. She got dressed, and the two of them rushed over to the phone store. 
Standing in line, she was appalled at not only how long the wait was, but by the people who were there in the store. There were just so many lower-class people there. They wore T-shirts with stupid slogans, sweatpants, dirty and worn-out shoes, and worst, gaudy gold jewelry. Who the hell wears gold anymore? Oh, I know. The people who wait in line at the phone store at 10 in the morning on Wednesday. As this thought crossed her mind, it was a perfect post. People would die laughing if she took a picture making a cute, disgusted face with the people behind her. It would get more than 17 likes. She needed a phone right now. After cleaning the cheap waiting area seats with a disposable wipe, she sat with Gunner and waited. Although she estimated that 20 minutes had gone by, she looked at the store clock and realized that only four had passed. Having nothing to look at was just cruel and unusual punishment. What the hell did people do in the old days while they waited? Gunner, don't touch the arm, she scolded. Don't touch anything you don't have to, please. In response, her son looked around for a few seconds, raised his eyebrows, and went back to his YouTube. She hated the videos he watched, not because of the poor quality and asinine content, but because of how many damn views those videos got. Tens of thousands, millions, all with nothing more than a kid playing a stupid video game or an idiot parent trying to recreate a kid's movie with store-bought props. It disgusted her. She should have that many views. Candace's attempt at a YouTube page was such an epic failure that she paid $6,000 to a professional scrubber to erase all the traces of her account. Not only were there 4,000 total views on the six videos of the Candy with Candace page, 70% of them were by men thinking the page belonged to a stripper. The comments were beyond cruel and burned into her brain forever. Thankfully, the scrubber did his job well, and the only humiliation was when a friend asked if she planned on doing any more videos. They all knew she wasn't going to, and it was a sore subject they were not supposed to bring up. They did it just to push her buttons. Just like always, rubbing her face on how many likes and shares their own pages got. Belly breaths. Calming down, her name was called. Leaving Gunner in his comatose stare, Candace approached the tech at the counter with a big smile. She wanted to make sure things went as smoothly as possible, after all. I, I broke my phone today, she said with a puppy dog whine, hoping the young, dark-skinned, dark-haired, and dangerously good-looking man would take pity on her and bring her a new phone as soon as possible. As she set the phone down on the counter, the man sucked in air quickly. Broke! is an understatement. They won't be able to fix that. Do you have insurance? Candace laughed. She wanted to explain that her husband thought phone insurance was a scam. But that would be wasting time. She needed a phone as soon as possible. No, I just want to get a new one and make sure this one is wiped clean. The man nodded, turned to walk away, but then hesitated. Ma'am, may I ask what you mostly use your phone for? Candace made a face. It's a phone. I use it for phone stuff.
The man laughed politely and smoothed his yellow polo. It was only then she noticed that he was not wearing a name tag. I'll have to plug it in to clean everything off the phone. I need you to scan your thumb, but don't worry. I can only see analytical data on my screen. No pictures or email or anything like that. There was a standard white phone cord sticking out of a small hole in the desktop. But the man ignored that and reached under the counter to reveal a thick brown wire covered in what looked like deer fur. Candace scrunched up her face. She had seen different novelty cords before, but that one was just gross. As the man plugged the end of the furry cable into her phone, Candace glimpsed a brilliant flash of light. It was so jarring, she let out a small gasp and looked around the store to determine from where it had come. But no one seemed to have noticed anything. She shook her head and dismissed it as a migraine flash. Your thumb, ma'am. The good-looking man had to ask twice before she realized what he meant. Curiously, it looked as if the fur from the cord was now starting to grow around the phone. She placed a thumb onto the small, cracked home screen. The shock of the pain felt like a needle shooting her in the finger. She yelped, pulled back, and saw blood on her thumb. Shit! Broken glass! Popping the thumb into her mouth, she looked at the man. He was not smiling. He was simply looking at the computer screen with a dead stare. Don't worry, I'm fine, she mumbled under her breath. After a solid 30 seconds of silence from the man, a smile started to cross his face. Small at first, then bigger, and bigger, to the point where it was almost impossibly big. Dread was starting to set into Candace's stomach, but she could not understand why it was there or why it was going on. Ma'am, according to your screen time usage, you spent more than nine hours of your day yesterday on social media. Candace felt her face get hot. Her brain turned and turned as she tried to think of a way to respond. Just as she decided on a how-dare-you response, the man spoke again. I have good news for you. I can see how important these apps are to you. We are only allowed to give one of these out a month as a top-secret test. But if you are interested, I can offer you a new phone called the Daigo Social. We say it like the name Diego. It does all the stuff an iPhone does, but it is especially created for social media. Candace thought that sounded interesting, but it also sounded like a scam. No, I just want the new iPhone. It was time to upgrade anyway. The man's smile faded. Seventeen likes, Candace. You were going to tolerate that and those other bitches always getting more likes? It felt like a punch to the gut. How on earth could he have known? Was the phone recording her this morning? She couldn't even think of how to respond. The man continued, Have you seen the talentless teen girl on TikTok? The one with over 60 million followers? Tens of millions more than every celebrity there is? Well, she has the Diego, was one of the first to get it. She'd still be popping pimples in the high school's bathroom if it weren't for this phone. Instead, she is on every late-night talk show and is one of the most famous people in the world right now. Candace felt a bit dizzy. She had never heard of this phone, but for some reason, she trusted this man. Or at least she wanted to. 
The man reached under the counter and pulled out the most beautiful black box she had ever seen. It was clean and smooth, its cover a soft black material with nothing but a pair of antlers stamped in its shiny black foil. How much is that going to cost me? Candace heard herself say through a fog. The man removed the lid to reveal a stunning phone that made her old iPhone look like a brick. He picked up the box, turned it over, and let the phone drop into his hand. Adjusting his grip, he held the device up to Candace. Sleek black antlers were on the shiny back of the phone, and just under the logo were the letters, Daigo. As she stared at them in awe, he said, Smile! Caught off guard, Candace didn't even look at the camera, let alone smile. Perfect, he responded with his own smile. Delete that right now, Candace demanded, but when he turned to show her the picture, it was magic, plain and simple. She hadn't smiled, yet the picture of her showed a smile so elegant it made her jaw drop. In fact, it was the best picture she'd ever seen of herself. How? The man smiled again, held one finger up, and typed on the phone. Look at this. It hadn't been more than five seconds from when he last tapped the phone. Yet the picture was up on the Facebook, and the likes were coming in so fast, she lost her breath. I'll give you anything for it. Within 30 minutes of getting in her car, Candace made four different posts, all selfies with lame quotes. New phone, first selfie, need coffee, taking the day off with my gunner, God, I love this kid. Love driving with the windows down. By the time she parked at home, all of the pictures had over a thousand likes each, more than she'd ever accrued on a single picture. The girls were going to shit themselves. She'd be the new leader, not Tina. Candace couldn't believe her luck. The day went from the worst ever to the best, and she didn't even have to pay for the phone. The guy just made her promise that she would post as many pics as possible every day and not let anyone know about the phone as it was still in beta testing. What a deal. No need for belly breaths. By the time dinner rolled around, which was takeout because she didn't have time to cook, Candace had made over 20 posts and all of them were racking up those beautiful, beautiful thumbs up and hearts over and over. The average picture was hitting 3,000 likes. It was better than her wildest dreams. Even Gunner looked five pounds thinner and like a model in the pictures. The phone had been blowing up all day. Tina asked if she had gotten a makeover because she looked spectacular. Kelly asked if they could hang out, even though she never wanted to come over. And Britt, that bitch accused her of hiring a team of makeup artists and photographers. Canvas was the envy of the town. Hell, maybe soon she would be the envy of the world. Even Sam noticed when he came home. Instead of disappearing into his office for the night, he actually wanted to spend time with her. Thank you, Diego. When it was time for bed, Sam fell asleep instantly and she stayed on the phone, going through all of the comments and responding like a teen girl in love. Before she knew it, it was yet again three in the morning. Only this time, she hadn't slept a wink, 
It had been seven hours since her last post, and the thumbs were slowing to a drip. She knew this because it was in the middle of the night, but maybe if she did another post, it would get those thumbs popping quicker. Be sure to listen to our next episode for the conclusion of Likes. Today's interview is with John Russell, who has been a renowned psychic for over 50 years. He's been on Coast to Coast with George Norrie, I believe, 10 times, including just hours before this interview that I did with him. Uh, He filmed a pilot for the History Channel. John Russell is the author of many books, including Riding with Ghosts, Angels, and the Spirits of the Dead, A Knock in the Attic, True Ghost Stories, and Other Spine-Chilling Paranormal Adventures, 20 Ways to Increase Your Psychic Abilities, and in 2024, his new book, The Crying Tree and the Magic Rock. If you would like a psychic reading from John, you can find him at www.johnrussell.net. But now, without further ado, here's Mr. John Russell. I am here with Mr. John Russell, and there are so many things on your bio, sir, that I'm not even sure where to start here. But <laughs> the, uh, the one thing that jumps out at me, you've been a professional psychic for 50 years. 50 years. Which means you must have started when you were like two. Um, uh, let's see. So uh, really, what really jumped out at me was this uh, TV pilot for the History Channel. Right. I am uh, and have always been interested in the Civil War. I was a Civil War reenactor back in the uh, in, uh, beginning of the, whatever you call it, millennia. Oh, cool. <laughs> and... Uh, so Abraham Lincoln has always been one of the most fascinating people to me. So right. can you, uh, I, I take it it was a pilot, and I'm going to assume that it wasn't picked up yet. So uh, can you explain a little bit about what that was about? Yeah, unfortunately, the pilot never aired. And um, the way that it came about, the way that I shot the pilot, uh, there was, uh, or still is, a media company in New York City, Atlas Media, and uh, the producer that worked for them, one of the producers that worked for them, Jim Mullen, they contacted me out of the blue one day to um, send in an audition tape. Uh, They were wanting to start this new series, and the series was uh, historical events as viewed from a psychic perspective. Yeah, it was really cool. Psychic History was the name of the series. And uh, so out of the blue, I get this email to send in an audition tape. So uh, my wife filmed me. We cut an audition tape, sent that in. They liked it, and it went to a screen test. So they came out. uh, My producer came out with a uh, camera crew, and we did a screen test. And they liked that, so they okayed the pilot. They green-lighted the pilot. So... We went to um, to Washington D.C. and then and into Maryland, and we went to all these wonderful historic places. We went to um, you know Ford's Theater. We went to the Samuel Mudd House, uh, the Peterson House across the street from Ford's Theater, where Lincoln was taken after he was shot. And one of the reasons they chose me, apart from the veracity of what they could ascertain from my psychic abilities 
was that I was the poorest student of history on the planet, and I am. I hate history. I don't like history. I don't remember history. I was the guy in school that wrote the answers in pen on his palm to try and pass the history test. That was literally me. So they knew that if I got anything, uh, it would be coming from a place of a genuine psychic gift, not from anything that I knew or had researched or whatever. So uh, in addition to that, they would not let me know places that we were going. They would take me blind to all these places. And we would just show up and it was like, oh, okay, we're at Ford's Theater. And then we would go to various other places. Ford's Theater I knew of, of course. Uh, and beyond that, I knew that Booth had assassinated Lincoln there and that was it. That was the sum total of my knowledge, literally. Mm -hmm. And uh, we got in Ford's Theater and uh, we had our, our film crew. The great thing about this was it was me, my producer, and the film crew, and that was it. Uh, no tourist. The docents made all these places available to us privately. And so I got to go in and wander around as the, the, my guys on the other side directed me, as Spirit directed me. And I got to pick up all these wonderful impressions and learn all of these fantastic things psychically and then translate that onto the pilot and to the film crew. And like, for example, one of the greatest things, uh, there's a, a theater underneath, uh, or a museum, I'm sorry, underneath Ford's Theater. And in some of the uh, places like the Peterson House and the museum there, they have some actual artifacts, I believe, and a lot of reproductions. Mm -hmm. And for me, it doesn't matter if it's the real thing or if it's a reproduction because I can still psychically trace the lineage back of the energy, what happened there, what happened in regard to that object or that place or whatever. So anyways, they had the door there that goes into the presidential box in Ford's Theater. And uh, there's a hole drilled in the door and the, uh, the official party line is they had this plaque up there that read that Booth had drilled the hole in the door so that he could look in, see where Lincoln was sitting, see when he was seated to burst in and shoot him. See, that and doesn't I, make sense to me right there, right from the get-go. Yeah, and I said, no, this is not right. I said, Booth did not drill this hole. It sounds he to me like, to, seems to me, my first impression is security would have put that in there so they can keep an eye on the president without disturbing him. Right. That's my but thought. A, that was my thought, but apparently security didn't. And I said, Booth had this drilled by someone who worked in the theater that oh. wouldn't arouse suspicion by doing so. Okay. And so sure enough, uh, after they did all the research and everything, after we shot the pilot, they found out that the owner of the theater had told one of his carpenters to drill a hole in the door. It was, as I correctly um, ascertained, it was not Booth that had drilled the hole. It was someone in the theater that worked in the theater that had drilled the hole that wouldn't arouse suspicion by being there. So uh, those were the types of things that I picked up psychically during the investigation. And we were able to uh, uh, verify those things. We had a, a staff, a panel of Lincoln experts, and we could run the things that I uh, picked up on by them 
and then also they did a, a ton of extensive research afterwards to verify things. So it was an amazing, amazing experience to be able to stand in those historical places where all these events had occurred and psychically basically relive those events and the people and the emotions and the energies involved. And then we went to uh, the Samuel Mudd House where we actually caught paranormal phenomena on camera. And that was really interesting. We had, uh, we may have been, this. we shot the pilot a long time ago now. It's been almost a couple of decades, I think, since Jeez. we shot the pilot. Yeah, it's been a long I would love time. to get a hold of a copy of that pilot, though. Yeah, it's uh, we we've tried to do that, and it's the it's weird. It has a joint copyright between the History Channel and Atlas Media, and uh, very difficult to pry a copy loose. Um, but anyways, we um, may have been the very first to use a clear camera in a paranormal investigation. I don't know for sure that we were, but we suspected that we were. We had never seen anyone else use FLIR up to that point, and that's forward-looking infrared radiation. So the FLIR camera that we had, and of course we used regular cameras as well, but the FLIR camera was set so that uh, heat would register as white and cold would register as black when, when we were filming. So we had heard this noise downstairs. We were at the Samuel Mudd house, and I said, I believe the noise we heard is the ghost of Mrs. Mudd. I, I believe that uh, she's come to kind of put her two cents worth in on this investigation. And we picked up a lot of things there, but this was one of the most spectacular. Uh, I was standing in an area there, and I said, uh, Mrs. Mudd, is that you? And they were filming me with the regular camera and with the FLIR camera. And I said, she's walking toward me right now. And I said, I feel her walking through me. Her energy is literally passing through me, and then she's coming out the other side. And as I said that, the FLIR camera picked up black footprints on the floor, which indicates cold, and women's size period-era shoes with the footsteps walking in real time across the floor toward me and through me, and we picked up picked that up on the FLIR camera. That's cool. Yeah, so that was, that was really astonishing. Um... I got so many questions here. Uh, <laughs> let me start with this one. One of the, one of my favorite books, which um, don't know if it's true or not, but uh, it raises questions, was written by um, actress Kathy Bates' grandfather, Finnis mm -hmm. Bates, mm -hmm. uh, called "The Escape and Suicide of John Wilkes Booth." Mm -hmm. That stating that he did not die in that barn that everyone says right. he died in, and that he lived, and I believe until like 1906, and died. I think it was Enid, Oklahoma, or something. Um, I know you're not a history buff or anything, but while you were doing your investigation, did did you come across anything that might have been contradictory to what published? history is because according to that book that he wrote and and as far as i can tell he had no real reason to write it and lie and and uh, impugn his own reputation or anything other than he wanted the facts to get out that there was a cover-up going on that right. they needed they needed the public needed to know that the government had caught him and dealt with him and did mm -hmm. not want word to get out that oops we lost him yes. so just a, a question that i've always wondered if that was true or not you know well, interestingly enough, we went to the spot where the farm was 
mm-hmm. where Booth was hiding with the with the other fellow, and where he met his demise. And I hadn't studied that, didn't have any preconceived notion of it, but I was able to psychically connect with uh, the um, the circumstances of the time, the energy of the time, what played out, what transpired there. And I said, I feel like that Booth is is hiding in this barn with this other guy. And I said, all of a sudden I see all this um, cavalry all around. I said, there's people on horseback coming up with guns drawn. They're coming up in a stilting manner and they're like, okay, we know he's here. We got him, we got him, we got him, surrounded the barn. And uh, as the scenario continued to play out in my mind, Psychically, it came to me very, very strongly that Booth did die there, that they did kill him, they did shoot him, and that he did meet his demise there. And I said, I feel like that that Booth died here on the spot where we're standing or very, very close to it. And there was some innocuous marker there that the docent knew about. And he said, we're standing about probably about 20 feet away from where uh, Booth met his demise where he died. So my feeling was absolutely that he did meet his demise there. Um, So my other thought on Mrs. Mudd. uh, Right. We're learning so much about spirit world and and there's, uh, you know, people out there with with abilities like you. There seem like uh, this age of awakening is taking place and there just seems to be more and more people with abilities uh, waking up. Why are we still in in almost the dark ages as far as investigating paranormal activity? Why? I mean, I'm going to, of course, it's everybody who's listened to my podcast knows I'm going to call a spade a spade. And 99% of what I see on ghost hunting shows as evidence is crap. Yes, yeah, it's BS. (laughs) It's, It's like, why can we not get a clear... EVP with right. some real names and data attached to it. Yeah. Why do we have people investigating that are like, show me a sign, and, and they, they give you a sign? <laughs> yeah, or they get, or they give you a sign, and then you're like, was that you? Give me another sign. Do it again. Do it again. Yeah, and yeah. that's all they do is they keep doing that. I said, if I was exactly. a freaking ghost, I would be bored, and I would exactly. tell you just to go to hell. I mean, exactly. I. Yep. It's just, it's like kindergarten romper room as far as ghost hunting's going on. There and is. I got out of it for almost a dozen years and just mm-hmm. starting to get back into it now because I wanted yep. to see how much progress we've made. And I don't see where we've made any. Exactly, exactly. And the problem is that the ghost hunting shows on TV are not an accurate representation of what it's like to do paranormal investigation and to interact with the other side, they're entertainment. And they're made to sit your butt in the chair and uh, pay money to advertisers, get get advertisers to, uh, you know, support the show. And it's pure entertainment value. And I've talked to, uh, from the horse's mouth, I've talked to some of the on-air talent that were big name on-air talents on some of these big name ghost hunting shows. And they have told me that there were occasions when the producers would say, all right, now as we're filming in this room, can you jump and scream and run out of the room 
and we'll we'll fix up something, make it look like it happened later or whatever. Or can you work up a cry here? Can you get really emotionally distressed or whatever this and the other? And then I have it on again from the horse's mouth, from some of the producers behind the scenes in some of these things that are not involved with the the uh, goofiness, but are have worked in serious investigation and have worked on serious shows where they have gotten involved with some of these so-called investigators and against their better judgment have given them permission to uh, maybe work with one of their clients or something that uh, one example was a uh, people that had a house they wanted investigated so against his better judgment the uh, the guy said okay well we'll let this group one of the well-known uh, TV groups come and investigate your house and with the condition that you keep this uh, the people's names anonymous and the location anonymous that you just go in, film the investigation, don't tell people where it's at, don't tell people who they are. Well, not only did they violate the confidentiality, uh, one of the cast members asked to use the people's bathroom and came out of the bathroom with cocaine residue on his nose. <laughs> so this is the kind of nonsense that's going on on these things. And, you know, in the ghost hunting shows, again, the reason we're not making the progress is the serious investigators are, are not highlighted. We're, we're not put on screen. We're not given time. We're not, you know, the people that are uh, cursing and challenging the ghost to do something. And then when something happens, they scream and run like little girls. Those are yeah. the people that get the TV, you know, shows. Right, and, and, and yeah, and separate from the professional wrestling of ghost hunting, which is what you're talking about, basically. Um, yeah. yeah, the serious investigators that are doing things under the under the radar that no one hears about. I mean, I got a few connections, and I, and, and I would think I would be hearing something, but as far as I can tell, I'm not even hearing much progress from, from the serious investigators. Yeah. It's like we're almost at a... At a Stand still. Yeah, you know, I think the, um, I think there are some people like like myself. You know, I get good results. I get clear EVP. I get communication with spirits on the other side during investigations that are verifiable. Um, but you know, that maybe if I wore a snake around my neck and a pink tutu and had flashing beads in my hair or something, I might get a TV show. I don't know. But, I do not want to picture that. Thank you. Very yeah, much. no kidding. No. Um. So, you know, that, that's the problem we have is, is people are going for the flash and the dash. They're going for the entertainment. They're not going for, um, you know, the, the serious, um, investigation. And I, one thing that I want people to understand, and I've tried to get this, this through to, uh, producers and so on and so forth is that you can do absolutely serious investigation and it doesn't have to be dry it doesn't have to be boring it can be entertaining but it doesn't have to be melodramatic and over the top stupid and you know you don't have to fake things and whatever so you know i think another problem that has arisen uh, i wasn't aware of this till i shot the pilot for the uh, the history channel and we were at the time one of the few people given access to any of these historic locations for the simple reason that some of these goofball so-called ghost hunters had gone in there, made asses out of themselves, and these historic places said, that's it, never again, don't bring any psychics, don't bring any ghost hunters, don't bring any paranormal investigators, no camera crews, no nothing. 
And the only reason that we got carte blanche to those places was because we had the cachet of the History Channel, we had the cachet of Atlas Media, and they had contacted these people and said, look, this guy's the real deal. He's not a flake. He's not melodramatic. He's not going to get in there and say and do stupid things and embarrass you. Uh, like one of the incidents they were telling me about that they had experienced when they finally decided, okay, we're shutting this down to everybody, was this woman came in that was supposedly a big-name psychic and uh, had her boyfriend or husband or whoever with her and got in one room during the investigation and screamed, oh, my God, he touched me, and fainted into her boyfriend or husband's arm or whatever it was. <laughs> Nonsense like that. So they were like, uh-uh, no more, that's it. Can so, we say uh, Derek Okora? Um, <laughs> <laughs> flop like a fish? Yeah, um, flop, okay. like a fish. <laughs> flop like a fish. So, uh, you know, and, uh, and again, one of the things that I've experienced um, is we need to marry science and the paranormal to get a better understanding of this. But people in the psychic realm don't trust scientists because they've made fun of us, belittled us, downgraded us, and, and the skeptics have, you know, howled at us. By the same token, scientists don't trust working with the paranormal realm and with psychics because of people like what they see on the ghost hunting programs. So we have that difficulty. And uh, I had uh, met a, uh, made a friend. Uh, he heard me on one of my uh, Coast to Coast IM appearances. And he emailed me afterwards, and we started talking, then we called, then we became friends, and we still stay in touch. And he was at Stanford, at Stanford when they developed Stanford Research Institute. He wasn't with SRI, but he was at Stanford when they developed SRI. So he was telling me about uh, all the things that he experienced there and that, you know, the research with uh, Putoff and Targ and Geller and, and all of these people. And... Uh, he said the alphabet agencies were throwing tons of money, uh, you know, at SRI because these things worked. And um, they, uh, one interesting thing he told me, which kind of goes in line with our conversation about why aren't we doing more and why aren't we doing better, is um, he had a, uh, uh, this guy from one of the alphabet agencies uh, told him that they had this done the successful remote viewing program and showed him the uh, the diagram and the uh, the target was sitting in an outdoor like a plaza by a train track I guess it was like a train station there but there were uh, walkways around and bushes whatever this and the other so the guy saw all that and he sketched the target and the bench and the the station and the train tracks and the bushes and everything else and my friend looked at it and he said uh, where's the train and the guy said, what do you mean? He said, where's the train? He said, this is a, a train station, a busy train station. You'd think that at some point during there, as many train stops come through, as many times a train comes through and stop to pick people up, that he would have picked up the train. Where's the train? And uh, the guy was like, well, but it doesn't matter. We got, our, we got our results. And he said, yeah, but think of this. And he explained it to me. And I'm a photographer, so when he found that out, he said, oh, you'll get this immediately then. He said, he told the guy, he said, look, your uh, remote viewer is a uh, film camera set on a slow speed with slow speed film, a slow shutter speed with slow speed film. And he said, so 
the train goes by and he doesn't pick it up because right. he's not tuned into that. He's not trained for that. And I'm taking a snapshot every now and then. Yeah, exactly. And I immediately understood that because as a photographer, one of the first uh, lessons you're given, problems you're given to solve in your training is go to New York City, stand on a busy street corner, take a picture of this building without any people or traffic. <laughs> okay, how do you do that? Well, you set the camera on a tripod, you use slow feed, speed film, or nowadays slow, you know, slow digital setting, and a slow shutter speed, and it blurs the people and the, and the uh, traffic uh, completely gone. It blurs them completely out, but captures the building. So I understood that immediately, and he, and he was telling the guy, he said, so if you use a high-speed film and a high-speed, you know, high shutter speed, you're going to capture every bit of motion that goes by. And he said you could retrain your remote viewers to be high-speed cameras using high-speed film, and they're going to get even more detail in the, the thing they're remote viewing, including like the train going by and maybe people walking by, planes going overhead, things like that, which could be valuable intelligence. And he said the response of the government man was, "Yeah, it's good enough. We got our, we got what we needed." <laughs> so you know there was no interest in getting better and in doing better, and so that's that's one of the problems we encounter. And then uh, we need more people doing serious research. On on one of the interviews I was on, uh, one of the guys was a professional musician, and he told me he said, "John, he said, I can take." any voice, any sound, any piece of music, and I can put it in my software, I can take it apart, manipulate it any way I want to, analyze it, find out what frequency it's on, do anything I want to with it. He said, I upload these voices from EVP, I can hear them, and I cannot find the frequency that they're on. So this is our big problem right now, is serious research into developing ways to find that frequency that the EVP voices are using. And I told him, I said, you know, when we do that, we're going to have real-time two-way communication with the other side. But right now, we're lagging behind in that uh, technology and that development. And instead of people uh, saying, okay, well, the ghost box works pretty good most of the time, but let's see how we can make that better. I don't think there's research into making that better. They're just trying to make better ghost boxes instead of saying, okay, Let's abandon the ghost box or let's use it as a, a foundation, a launching pad, and let's see how far we can develop that technology and how much further we can take it to get to a point where we might actually capture these frequencies, find that frequency and capture it more reliably. And then after you do that, you know, obviously there's room to go on from there. It's one of the arguments I've been making since I first started my show was that I argue there are no experts in paranormal research yet right. because no one has figured out what is right and wrong yet. Exactly. So, and if exactly. someone's going to come up to me and say, I'm an expert, I'm going to call bullshit mm -hmm. because right. we don't know. We're, we're right now, we're throwing noodles on the wall and seeing what sticks. What you're, sticks. You're, exactly. you're right. right. You're, 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 you're trying the ghost box and you're trying this and you're trying mm -hmm. that and hoping to find out what works and what doesn't. And so far, we have not found that one thing that we can all agree on definitely that, works, except maybe, maybe EVPs. Yep. Maybe EVPs, I'll give you that one. But even then, the Class A's are rare and few and far between. Right, um, right. So, 
but going back to what you just said about two-way contact, it, it brought me back to Sarah Estep's book, Voices of Eternity, right. that I read years ago. <laughs> yes, and and where, uh, for anyone who doesn't remember, uh, she uh, used to sit in her office and just turn on a tape recorder every day and just ask questions, and eventually she would get answers. Right. Um, and eventually she started talking with uh, this organization called Timestream, right. who was on the other side trying to develop basically working on the same us. thing yeah. we are trying right. to develop communication back with us two-way yeah, communication I'm with so. stream, yeah. mm -hmm. yep yep so um boy there's so many things here i don't even know where to go with this conversation <laughs> uh, i think one of the things too that uh, that hampers what we're doing is like you say when the so-called investigators go in they don't go in with respect. They don't go in with understanding. They go in cursing, challenging, eating snacks, laughing, being frivolous, carrying on a bunch of nonsense. And it's like you say, if they have like a REM pod sitting there and they say, is there a spirit here? Can you demonstrate by setting off the REM pod? And the REM pod goes off. And then exactly like you say, oh, do it again, do it again, do it again. You're not dealing yeah. with a trained chimp on the other side. You're I know, yeah, you're, you're insulting the intelligence. You're yes. insulting the intelligence of this, this entity, whoever it is. And uh, that's one of the things that, that just really kills all the paranormal investigation that everybody does. And it's a wonder we get any communication, uh, you know, with any of these clowns. That, yeah, that exactly. Nonsense. If I was on the other side, I'd be building a wall trying to make sure there's a good separation between exactly me and, and right. uh, Yoakum exactly over there. Right. Yeah, so yeah. Um, it's, it's just, yeah, I don't even Another know. Another thing but, that I think that hampers us, uh, a theory that I came up with a long time ago, when I was a, a young man, when I was a teenager growing up in West Texas, uh, we uh, met this guy that was a, a ham radio operator, shortwave radio operator. Hey, I am one of those. Oh, okay. Well, you'll know then. And on, <laughs> on a really good night, we would sit in West Texas and talk to England or Australia, and they'd be clear as a bell, and we might talk for 20 minutes. The next night, we'd do good to reach across town. And so, you know, we have these problems, as all uh, radio operators know and radio station owners know. We have these problems with atmospheric conditions that affect the signals and their transmission. And my theory is that the other side works the same way, and we just haven't figured out the way to, to get through that yet. And like with radio here, there may not be a way. There, there may just be things that affect it, and we're stuck with that. But I feel like it's kind of that way. When you go on a paranormal investigation, the conditions might be just perfect that night. You get a lot of response. You get a lot of results. You get a lot of communication. Next night, you may go back. There may not be much. And it, that may be part of it, you know, due to the uh, signal failure, if you will. That could be a part of it as well. So there's so many things that we need to look at seriously, and we're not. You know, we're, we're looking at ways to, um, you know, how can I make more money being on this TV show? Or, you know, how can I get more, um, you know, recognition and, and build myself up and make more money and, and get that. And that's what people are looking at doing instead of getting down in the trenches and trying to figure this out. You know, and I do everything I can from a psychic perspective, but I'm not good with electronics. I'm not good with those type of things. I don't have the first clue what to do or, or you know, what to do with that. And uh, you need somebody that does, that can work with somebody 
that can contact the other side and maybe get some inspiration and say, hey, tell this guy to put this kind of circuit in there to do this thing, you know. But nobody's doing that right now. And the, the whole paranormal community, uh, I, get, I get really frustrated with it because everybody's like a celebrity now. And it's just a cottage industry of being a paranormal celebrity. And nobody's giving us any real content Nobody's doing anything new or trying to, to, you know, bust new ground. And I'm always doing that. And I've discovered just here in the past few years, uh, I've discovered this incredible, wild connection with rocks. I have magic rocks that have reported to me that change size, weight, appearance. <laughs> I've got witnesses to that. It's like, holy cow, here's this whole new thing to research this whole new experience to go into. And I'm excited as hell about that. And I try and convey that to as many people as I can, try and get people excited about that. But, you know, again, that's that's not what goes on TV shows. Yeah, a friend of mine has been uh, telling me about, uh, she loves being out in nature and grounding mm -hmm. and all that stuff. And, and she's been telling me that, that there are things happening that if you pay attention. Uh, yes. I had, I interviewed Paul uh, Rodemaker on here not too long ago, uh, and and then again back when he was executive uh, director of the uh, Monroe Institute, they did a lot of stuff oh, on yeah. remote, remote viewing and all that, um, right. and a uh, hemi sink, and he had a experience in a forest too where he said uh, things just came alive while he was yeah. there. So there is yeah. there is some weird things going on out there, but as far as the entertainment part of this, it's it's all what the audience asks for, you know. Right. As long as as long as society is still willing to pay someone millions of dollars just to throw a football around, uh, and that's their priority, you know. Yep. Someone that can do that is 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 way more important than your first responder or something like that. Exactly. exactly. If that's the mentality of your society, that's yeah. the kind of crap you're going to get on TV, and that's the kind of research you're going to get. So, unfortunately, that's um, so true. That's absolutely so true. I and, apparently uh, love cool. alienating all my listeners too, but sorry. <laughs> you know, I had uh, when the government released the first UFO report and acknowledged that UFOs are real and that they are physical objects, and so on and so forth. You know, I plastered that all over my social media, and I talked about it on as many podcasts as I could, and it didn't even make a blip on the radar screen. Our government acknowledged the reality of UFOs, and people were like, yeah, I hope they don't close the beach this weekend. You know, right. I still need to wear my mask to the beach. And uh, the important oh. thing is, what does Kim Kardashian think about it? Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God, I couldn't believe it. I was like, holy cow. You know, here we're talking about the government acknowledging the reality of UFOs, that they're physical objects, and they have basically said, not theirs, not ours, and that only leaves one conclusion, extraterrestrial. And they've stated that in black and white, in public, and it's like everybody's like, uh, when when's the new show come on tonight? <laughs> it's on TV. Like, oh my God, we're talking about one of the most momentous things here in the history of mankind to get that even that little bit of a, a public acknowledgement from the government, and it just seemed like it just flew over people's heads. Yeah, it's like they they just don't seem to care. Uh, yeah, I was astonished. It. I was just I I couldn't believe it. 
about anything important. All right, I'm going to take this second right here to uh, get political for a second. Okay. Um, I st- I, uh, as far as the benefit of my listeners here, um, got an election season coming up. We right. all seem to pay attention to presidential elections. We don't seem to pay attention so much to the local elections. Right. And, and those are the ones that actually influence the town where you live, and those are the yes. ones that can really yep. make a difference at the grassroots. Exactly. Okay, exactly. so Paul Allen, who founded Ancestry.com, mm-hmm. actually has a new project that he's founded, and it's called Citizen Portal. AI. And what he's doing is he's using AI and it goes out and it searches the internet and it grabs all the local board meetings, all the interviews that your local candidates have done and everything else. And it just puts it all together in one little local page. So all you, all you have to do is go to this one page and there is your your animal control board meetings. Right. There's this. There's a guy running for city council, and every interview he's ever done, and what he said. So you can go there, and just in a few minutes, you can brush up on all your local people. So right. when you go to vote, you know exactly who you want to vote for. You're just not going in blind and checking off R's and D's and everything else like we always do when right. it comes to right. local elections. So. I just want my listeners to be aware that that is out there. It is coming. Um, in fact, it's a brand new, it's only in beta, so you can actually buy stock in this company uh, right now, and I've already bought a few shares myself. And that gives you, like you say, that gives you the ability to find out what's going on locally, what the local platforms are of all the local politicians, and as you state, you know, that's what affects your life day to day in your community is these people's decisions, not the president. You know, it doesn't matter who's in office as president, the price of milk stays the same. And what happens on a local basis is done by local politics, you know, not not by the president. It was, um, oh God, I'll think of his name here in a minute. Uh, one of the... Um, the big high politicians said uh, the president is basically just a figurehead and uh, I'll, I'll try and think of his name here in a minute but uh, the, and it and it's so true the president is basically a figurehead it's amazing how little power to change anything the president actually has well we we found that out not too long ago so uh, yeah. you got you got the bureaucracy that has been there for decades exactly. uh, regardless of who right. the president is and if they don't like what the president says they just go ahead and do what they want to do anyway do so, what they want to do anyways yeah yep so, um, all right go ahead oh i'm uh i'm just trying to figure out where to go from here um <laughs> we've uh i i gotta say i've uh i see the name psychic flung around quite a, quite a bit lately. Uh, yeah. I can go to any of these uh, podcast guest sites, and it seems like everybody's included psychic at the end of their name. Right. So, um, so forgive me if I if I am a little reluctant to. Uh, I'm a kind of show me guy, so yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know that's that's something that I've it's bugged me forever and a day because when I was aware of my psychic gift developing when I was between five and six years of age. And then all of these uh, physical paranormal manifestations started happening to me 
that my family saw, friends saw, so on and so forth, that actually occurred on the physical realm. I said, okay, I need to find out what this is all about. I need to find out why I was chosen for this, given this gift, why this is developing. And I deliberately set out to study it. I read everything I could find on it in religion, psychology, parapsychology, the paranormal, the psychic realm. I read every book I could find. I had real good reading comprehension from the time I was young. And by the time I was 11 years old, I was reading adult text. I was reading like William James and Carl Jung and all of this and all the uh, the books that were out on psychics and on the paranormal and so on and so forth, studying those. And at the age of 11, I started doing my own paranormal investigations. And my view on all of this was, okay, I've got this gift. Can I train it? Can I make it better? Can I be more accurate? And the answer is you can, up to whatever degree of ability that you have. But I also saw a lot of things that disturbed me and bothered me. Um, there were people in the church that practiced one thing and did another. So their religion was completely false. There were people in the psychic paranormal community that proclaimed things that did not work, that were completely false, that they basically used, like you say, to give themselves a following and make money. And that just irked me no end, even as a kid. And I determined then that it was like, okay, I've got to find a true path in this. I've got to find the true North Star for myself so that as I'm developing this, I don't fall into any of these traps. And one of the ways I did that was I began to put into practice everything that I read or heard or somebody told me. And my criterion for it was, did it work or not? Does it work or not? If it didn't work, got rid of it, proclaimed it false, didn't need it, moved on. If it worked, okay, let's keep it. Let's investigate it. Let's go further. Why does it work? How can we make it work better? So on and so forth. So I'm going to be 70 in March. So I started reading professionally at the age of 18. So I've read professionally for 50 years. I've read for clients in 40 countries. Uh, I began to study the tarot when I was in my teens. I still use the tarot. We talked about that on Coast to Coast last night in depth. And my entire life, up to, still to this day, has been study, research, investigation, trying to get better, trying to get more accurate, trying to find out what works and what doesn't, what's a better way to communicate, connect with other people. And having spent my entire life doing that, it aggravates me no end when I see somebody that's uh, picked up a book on tarot, got a tarot deck, done 10 readings for friends and family. Now I'm a tarot reader. Now I'm a psychic. You're or, a tarot master. I'm a tarot master now. <laughs> or they've, you know, they, uh, uh, Every time the phone rings, oh, that might be Aunt Sally, and it is a few times, and this, uh, oh, I'm psychic, I'm psychic. And now they've, you know, hung out a shingle and, and set up shop. And like you say, everybody and their dog's a psychic. Everybody and their dog's a paranormal researcher. And over the years, you know, uh, collectively, in total, I've done radio, including podcasts and, and radio interviews uh, of late of the past few years. Collectively, I've done radio for 18 years, and I started out doing live radio, and the only thing I did on live radio, and I did some of that for nine years straight, and I would be on four stations a month, big stations, large stations, big stations in Texas, big stations in St. Louis, Missouri, where the, uh, the DJs were celebrities themselves. And I would be on these, uh, these shows sometimes once a week, 
uh, on all of these stations. And the only thing I did was short call-in readings. So people would call in for a psychic reading of like one to two minutes. And man, I blew up those things. I blew up those radio stations. And people would call back in. They'd go, holy cow, I called in for fun. And this guy told me something that happened. It was true. His predictions are accurate. His insights are accurate. I did that for nine years straight in this situation. And so when I got into um, doing the podcast and everything again, the way that came about is really funny. After this long, uh, long stretch of radio ended through no choice of my own, it just all of a sudden dried up one day. And it was like some of my best friends that were DJs, they called me and said, well, John, we're not doing radio anymore. It's just as popular as it was to have a psychic on the air. It's not now. So nobody's doing that. Yeah. And uh, some of the stations, it was really funny, like one of the big stations I was on in St. Louis, they fired everybody and then changed the formatting overnight and put in an all-new crew. One of the DJs called me and he said, um, he called me up and I said, oh, geez, I said, we're not supposed to be on the air today. Army said, no, I'm just calling you to tell you we're not going to be on the air anymore. And I said, what happened? What's the matter? And he said, you ain't going to believe this. He said, we got a new station owner, new format. He said, while we were live on the air, hot mic, <laughs> live on the air, the guy comes through the front door with armed guards, tells everybody to pack up their stuff, shut the shut the mics down, take their stuff to their cars, and he literally put a chain and a padlock on the door, and that's how we got noticed that the format had changed. So, so this is what happened, and so I was off the air, and I missed it. I love being on the air with the personalities. They were good people. Um, when they found out that my psychic gift was real, and it really helped people, and people were calling back in going, oh my God, this guy, this guy is accurate, his, his predictions happen, so on and so forth. It was great, and I missed the people calling in. And so um, after this tremendously long hiatus, uh, I got on Coast to Coast AM and uh, promoting uh, my first book. And when I did, tons of people heard me, like, oh, we got to have this guy for our podcast. So I started doing podcasts again. And over the past three years, I've been interviewed over 170 times now on, on all these various podcasts and everything. And what's been so hilarious to me is through social media and through these podcasts, seeing people that were, oh, we're, we're a paranormal investigation society. We're a paranormal investigation group. We're paranormal investigators. Gone by the wayside. Gone. Vanished. Give it up. People that started these podcasts, oh boy, I'm a radio interviewer, I'm a podcaster, we're going to interview all these psychics, we're going to interview all these people about UFOs, gone, dropped by the wayside, giving it up, you know. It, they found out that you have to have a thick skin, they found out that it's not that financially rewarding, uh, they found out that you don't, you know, it's grueling work, and I have seen so many people just, just drop by the wayside. And so it's, uh, you know, it's another aspect of it. You're either the real deal or you're not, and you're willing to put in the time, effort, and energy or you're not. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing, uh, I did this show for, I don't know, a couple of years back in uh, 2009, 2010. Uh, right. then, I, then I switched over to a uh, syndicated country music show, mm -hmm. uh, independent, independent country music. And all of those radio shows, everything I've ever done has cost me money. 
Yeah, I, I have. I have yet to make a dime off anything right. that I do. Right. I do. I do this because I love it. Because yeah. I have questions. Yeah. And the best way for me to get answers is talking to someone like you, exactly. and I want to share these answers with other people as well. Right. Right. And we'll take the good and the bad, whatever yep. whatever comes up. So, yep. um, so with that being said, I would love to right here and now extend to you an, an invitation maybe sometime in the future if you would like to do a, another live show that maybe we could put something together at some point and, and get some people absolutely. in here and, and get some questions answered. Um, oh, sure. Absolutely. That'd be great. Love to. I, uh, I told myself I wasn't going to do live shows anymore because they're so unpredictable and you just never know what you're going to get. But uh, I, th I think this one might be, uh, might be kind of interesting. Yeah, I, I like live shows. I like the unpredictability. And uh, like I say, you know, for the first several years, uh, over a decade, that's all I did was live radio. And, you know, it was people calling in live and doing those mini readings. And uh, it was it was a lot of fun. And then uh, returning to the interviews, uh, you know, we do some live shows. And uh, I like the unpredictability. I like what people ask. Uh, you know, it's uh, I think it's a lot of fun. So, yeah, I'd be up for that. Absolutely. I uh, I started out at a local AM community radio station up in Vermont, and uh, mm -hmm. we uh, we were interview. I can't remember, we had this local girl on as a guest, and uh, and then the phone rang, and you know we answered it, and they're like, "Well, who's this? Well, this is her grandmother," <laughs> and. This went on, I mean, and, and acting really weird, you know. This went on for like 10 minutes, and then they hung up. And come to find out, it was her mother in the lobby calling in, pretending to be her grandmother. And it's just stuff like that is what turned me off for live radio. Yeah, um, yeah. But, I mean, it, it can be fun, too. We've had, we've had a oh, lot yeah. of fun. I well, then you got that disconnect button handy, so you can just always go, eh, that one's out Oh, here. yeah, we did, we, oh, time to go to a commercial. Yeah, we did yeah. that many times, too. But And, and that's, that's some of the fun that I do miss about live radio. Yeah. Um, but I, since I started doing this show, um, originally my co-host, Josh Mantello, he was the head of Berkshire Paranormal. And mm -hmm. uh, so he, he brought the expertise in the ghost hunting. Uh, and me, I just always had questions. I, right. Right. I was never so much interested in why someone is still here haunting a house. Mm -hmm. I always wanted to know about the people who successfully crossed over. Right. The people who have died and what is life like after this world. Yeah, yeah. And that's what started me down my my spiritual journey and then I put it aside for a while as I got remarried again and everything and now uh, just uh, getting back into it again and six months ago started on this journey again and oh, I've learned so much um, yeah. for anyone who hasn't seen it just a couple days ago I posted a 20 minute video of my spiritual journey so far on my Facebook page so please uh, go take a look at that sure. um, but I basically learned the the life cycle is you are here on earth to learn something. Mm -hmm. The The ultimate goal is to become a perfect energy being like God um, or, or whatever that, that top entity is you want to call it. Right, um, right. 
And that's another thing I said, don't take religion at its face value. Do your own exactly. homework on that as well, too. Yeah, exactly. Um, because churches are organized. Religion is an organization which have leaders and leaders have egos and egos and agendas and all that stuff, too. So Exactly right. Learn. And churches, churches have become a bottom line dollar organization now. You know? Yep. Um, that's why I belong to a non-denominational church. So. Right. Um, uh, basically, it's uh, it's it's me and and them, and that's it. So, there you go. Anyways, we have learned that uh, we are energy beings. Yes. Um, we are uh, nothing but energy. We have no form. We come here in the earthly plane to learn something, to help increase uh, our knowledge, so we become a more perfect being. And then when we die, we go into a uh, through a past our post-life review and figure out what we've learned and what we haven't go back to the spirit world with our spirit group soulmates and then after a while then we plan our next life what do we need to learn this time and we come back and do it all over again so what are your thoughts of on that particular subject i don't know uh, the more I've interacted with the other side and with those on the other side, the more questions I have rather than answers. Uh, I do agree that when we come here on this earth, however we incarnate and for whatever reasons, uh, we do have life lessons to learn here, absolutely. And I think the older I've gotten, the more I've experienced life just regularly and psychically, spiritually, paranormally. Um, the overarching thing to me that I've learned is in all of it, we have to learn to exercise and um, convey, <clears throat> exhibit compassion, love and compassion to this world to the people in this world, to the animals in this world, to the nature in this world. That, of everything that I've learned and everything I've studied and everything that I've experienced, that's become the, the overriding key thing to me is that the exercise of love and compassion, learning love and compassion, and then learning to exercise love and compassion, that's the absolute most important thing. And I think if we can do that, uh, that's the the greatest thing to which we can aspire. And I'm always, you know, I, I'm talking to my wife and I talk to friends, I talk to people and I say, you know, um, okay, the, the latest Top Gun movie, Top Gun Maverick. Love it. I'm a patriot. Wish I didn't have to be a patriot, but I'm a patriot. Love the Top Gun movie. Uh, just, just astonishing, one of the best movies ever made. And as I'm watching that movie, I'm thinking, you know, we have uh, scientists at work, engineers at work, uh, machinists at work that develop these planes that are unfathomable. Um, and, and look, whatever the government shows us, that's the tip of the iceberg. You know, they have tons of stuff that, that we don't even, not even aware of, don't even know exists. But what was really blowing my mind for some reason, I found this um, video on YouTube while I was looking for other stuff, and it was a uh, cockpit cameras attached to uh, the the uh, Blue Angels planes in the cockpit and on the plane itself as they were going through these maneuvers. 
And I got interested in that and I began to look at all these other videos and there were cockpit videos from like the Raptor and from other fighter jets and everything. And when these things take off, when they fly, change direction, when they move, when they maneuver, when they bank, when they turn, when they dive, when they climb, the speed that they're doing this at, that you view through these cockpit cameras, is mind-boggling. You almost can't follow it. You almost can't fathom it. So we have developed this machinery that's capable of doing these mind-blowing feats. And we have people that are physically adapted and have the skills to put those machines through those paces and make them perform at that level. Yeah, I mean, the, the, amount of, the amount of Gs that they're pushing, I mean, these, yeah, a lot of times these, pilot, these pilots, they're right to the point of basically passing out. Yeah, and so you've got these people that can do this, you've got these machinery that can do this, and we utilize it for destruction and we utilize it for war. And granted, we have to defend our country, we have to defend ourselves. I, I understand all that. I'm, I'm not against that, I'm not saying that. But I'm looking at all of this, I'm thinking, you know, we spend billions and trillions of dollars figuring out better ways to annihilate each other. And for the most important research on the entire planet, which is our health, our well-being, and our spiritual growth, we do nothing. We do absolutely nothing. Uh, preachers, fake preachers come along and develop mega churches and turn into millionaires and their followers are no better off than when they started going to the church. Yep, because half, half, half of them don't practice what they preach once they leave the church. So that's exactly. The and um, we've got phony psychics and phony paranormal researchers and phony mediums making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and bilking their, their followers and their, their clients out of all of this money. And we've got all of this money going into the war machine. We've got all of this money going into entertainment, all of this money going into sports. And at the end of the day, we need answers on why are we here? Where are we going? What they're going to be like on the other side? Uh, what, what are better ways to heal ourselves physically? Um, you know, if you want to impress me, if you want to really, really, really impress me, Figure out something to start healing those kids in St. Jude's Hospital and get them out of there, you know? And these are things we need to be focusing on real spiritual issues. We need to be focusing on how do we heal our bodies? How do we heal our minds? How do we heal our spirits? How do we live in harmony with this planet instead of trashing it and destroying it? Every time you read a news article now, it's about nanoplastics, microplastics and nanoplastics. And they're saying you can't eat anything or breathe the air or drink water anywhere, even out of the tap without being infected with these nanoplastics that we've polluted our environment with. And so we ruin the earth instead of living in harmony with the earth. And we've gotten away from the old school way back hundreds of years ago where people had shamans that told you how to live in harmony with the earth, how to heal your body, how to heal your spirit, how to do these things. We've gotten so far removed from that. And everything's a cottage industry. And it just, it disturbs me terribly. And that's when we begin to make real progress is when we revert to that understanding and begin to work together toward that. And uh, like you say right now, that's a difficult road to hoe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so what I've learned is, is basically they describe God as total unconditional love. 
and that is the that is the ultimate that is what you strive for is to right. learn like right. you said love and compassion that is right. the ultimate goal and part of that is forgiveness and yep. that seems to be the stumbling block for a lot of people well Absolutely. this person did this to me and i can never forgive them right. well then you're never going to progress as a soul because that is right. one of the big lessons you need to learn is how to forgive someone no matter what they've done to you right. so yes uh someone walks into somewhere and and blows away 50 people for no reason yeah. And you're angry and there's no way you can forgive, but you need to figure out how, because yeah, you have to, yeah, there's, once there's you, all these negative yeah. disturbances that we have that we can't nurse, that yeah. we can't allow to continue to be in the atmosphere. And it's like you say, you have to figure out some way to purge that. And Every, everything out. that happens here happens for a reason, for a learning experience. Yeah. Um, yeah, it might be a big tragedy and everything, but once you leave the earth and go back to the spirit world, it's it's over and done with. This is like a play. You come here and yeah, okay, the play has a couple bad scenes, and but overall, once you're done, uh, the whole purpose was to learn something from it. That's true, so, but you know, even with that, I think that we need to try and work on this planet's energy and work on ourselves so that the play doesn't play out that way so that we right. don't have, you know, these horrific uh, experiences. Right. And, and hopefully as we progress, it will get to that point where yeah, we I have these know. things less and less and less, hopefully. Right. Uh, right. And, and that's going to change. Uh, that's going to take the mindset of a lot of people. And uh, yeah, that, that's, maybe lots of other lives and reincarnations before we get to that point. But that is something I have learned in just the last year is to forgive. Um, I uh, just got out of a a second marriage Mm -hmm. uh, and I was very angry with my ex-wife and I carried that for a year or so. And then I've learned to let that go, not be angry, to be tolerant, and then uh, it actually grew back to where now I actually like her again, yeah. and I understand yeah. things, and I'm, I'm right. forgiving and compassionate, and yeah. it makes a whole lot of difference. It does in you, yeah. in your outlook of the world because when you hold yeah. that inside, all you're doing, all it does is eat you up inside. Yeah. it's really not affecting the other well, person all that much. That's your focus, you know. Whatever you're focused on. That's your life, and if, yep. if if your focus is on something negative, your life is negative. There you go. And if you can put your focus on something positive, even though it's difficult to do, and try to maintain that, your life improves dramatically, and you do see things from a different perspective and a better perspective. So th- that's absolutely right, and I congratulate you for doing that. And if you want to get into the quantum physics of it, uh, negative thoughts have a lower frequency than positive thoughts right and the whole point is to increase your uh frequency increase your vibration because the higher the vibration the more positive energy you emit into the universe so basically the more happy thoughts the more times that you are in a happy state of mind it increases that for the whole universe and the whole world around you and that's a whole nother uh discussion as far as quantum physics and everything goes (laughs) right but yeah it's a very interesting so um 
John, I want to thank you. I mean, I've kept you here for an hour. Uh, I guess that's My enough. Pleasure. I'll give you the My rest pleasure. of your day back. Um, definitely would like to do this again. We would. Just